going to be reading now from Matthew chapter 21. And we're going to be starting in verse 1. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the roads. And the crowd went before him, and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. My alarm uh, went off at 4.30 a.m. And as soon as it went off, I knew that mistakes were made. This was the last day of our trip uh, where we took a team to work in Greece to work with refugees. And we were in Athens about ready to go home. And I came up with this great idea of watching the sunrise from the hill of Philippopos that overlooked the city. We'd get up as a team and we'd walk through the city and it was going to be great. And as we were walking through, uh, no one was awake, even those of us walking. And the, the streets were quiet and the, the sky was gray and the, the city was asleep. We got to the base of the hill and all of a sudden I heard a cicada start singing. Anyone ever heard a cicada sing? So we started to hear the cicada sing. I'm like, oh, that's a cicada. Like I grew up in Mexico and we had them there. And then a few more joined and then tens joined, then hundreds joined, then thousands of cicadas all simultaneously started singing on this hillside. And we start hiking up and we finally get to the top and we overlooked the city. And as soon as the cicadas had started singing, they stopped and it was silent. And we looked over the city the sun had not risen, the lights were still on, and it was just a sea of concrete with some lights. Then, as we turned around and took a different view, there was one thing that broke up the monotony of the concrete, and it was the hill that housed all these amazing Greek temples and statues, and even Mars Hill, where Paul went and talked with the Athenians about who Jesus was. 
And as we sat there and we looked, all of a sudden, the city said, I'm waking up, it's time to get up, city. And it said all the lights that were on simultaneously shut off. And so all the street lights and all the, the lights that were, that were surrounding us were off and we were just left with this dimness and this, this sun rising and the colors fading and changing. And then finally, the sun peaked its head over the hills. All the seabirds simultaneously flew from the ocean over the city. I don't know where they're going, but they all knew what time it was. It was so fascinating because I'm like, I just watched a city wake up. And for the first time, I thought of a city as a living, breathing thing and not just this place that we lived or we were. And so I want us to consider Jerusalem in that way this morning. To consider Jerusalem as a living, breathing thing that had something happening to it and in it that would change it forever. Because the city is just a sum of the people who live inside of it, is it not? And all of a sudden, there's an occurrence that's about to take place over the next few days that would literally change people's connection with God forever. You know when you're like, anyone here get bugged by the word literally? Like it literally drives you crazy when people use it? Wrong. <laughs> right? So you have that. And then you also are warned about exaggeration, right? Don't over-exaggerate. Use like always and forever. Like be careful when you use those words. What happens in Jerusalem this week literally changes man's interaction with God forever. Big statements about a big situation that's happening. So we're going to talk about what's going to be happening in this city. This is the start of Holy Week. Anyone here uh, do practice Lent over the last 40 days? Some people here practice this discipline of, of uh, keeping certain things from yourself in order to repent in this process. Some of the churches do that. Today's the last day of Lent, so you're going to see a lot of people uh, on their phones and a lot of people eating a lot of junk food today. Um, but that's not what today is about. Today is about the entrance of Jesus into Jerusalem, the triumphal entry. And I think that is so valuable for us to start to recognize these moments on an annual basis because our heart needs to be reminded. It really does. Because otherwise, we forget. So before we get into it, some backstory is always helpful. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to back up 41 generations, and we're going to start there, and we're going to help to maybe have a little backstory and explain why this day is so meaningful and what is actually happening in it. But I don't want to do that alone. I want a little participation. So I'm going to be telling the story, and then I'm going to like pause in my story, and you're going to fill in the word uh, that's missing in my story. So those of you who grew up in Sunday school are all excited. Um, those of you who are new, new to church, uh, just sit back, no pressure, just listen and take it in. If you want to discover for yourself a lot of these details, you can read Exodus 1 through 11, or you can just uh, simply uh, rent uh, the Prince of Egypt on, or watch on Netflix, and it will explain almost everything that we're about to talk about. So, 41 generations earlier, there was, uh, the nation of Israel was only one family at this point. And that one family, uh, 
The father had 12 sons, and one of those sons was hated by his brothers, sold into slavery, and found himself uh, through terrible circumstances, uh, ultimately in prison uh, in Egypt, only to be let out of prison as he fulfilled dreams, and then he became second in command of all Egypt, and his name was Joseph. Joseph saved his family from famine. The entire land had a massive famine. People were starving to death. He invited the nation of Israel, his family, into Egypt. And then 400 years passes. 400 years later, it's no longer one family. Many, 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 many families have come. One to two million people, in fact, now reside in Egypt. Egypt's getting nervous. A lot of people. They are populating faster than we are. Like, how do we deal with this? Uh, so they decided in order to keep them in control and under their thumb, and now that Joseph was long forgotten, they made the Israelites into their slaves. And by the sweat of their brow and the pain of their backs, they built the kingdom of Egypt. But they were still growing, and they were still a threat. So they took matters into their own hands to a drastic point, and they made a law that all firstborn children, all firstborn males, were to be killed and thrown into the Nile. So, that's not a good thing. People don't want to see that happen. One family has an idea. They say, instead of just throwing our child into the Nile without any way of surviving, we're going to put our child in a basket, and his name is Moses. And we're going to float him down the river and see what happens. He floats down the river, and I don't know how this happens. Maybe God was involved. He ends up at the feet of Pharaoh's daughter, who brings him in as his own, her own child. And so a princess of Egypt finds this boy and Moses now becomes a prince of Egypt. Fascinating how God is starting to move. Forty years pass. We're going to do some big jumps. Forty years pass. Prince of Egypt is 40 years old. He has identified that he is also simultaneously an Egyptian prince and uh, a member of this opp oppressed, slaved, enslaved group of people. And so He's out walking one day, and an Egyptian slave master is beating one of the Israelites, and Moses loses it, kills the Egyptian slave master, buries him, and runs. Goes into the desert, alone, scared, not knowing what to do. But there, he meets a Midian—no, this is a little tougher. He meets a Midianite woman named— Woo, there's like four over there. That's good. Named Zipporah, whose father was named Jethro. The only reason I include those two names in, in case you, you might be having a kid sometime soon, or, or you are looking name for your pets, Zipporah and Jethro. Zippy, I think that's a great name for a dog. Um, anyway, so he finds himself for the next 40 years living in the wilderness, caring for a Jethro's sheep, and one day he's walking through the hills of Israel and he comes upon a, a burning bush. Except for 
it's inflamed, but it's not burning and it's not dissipating. All of a sudden, a voice comes from the bush and says, take off your shoes, for this is holy ground. He is in the presence of God. God then explains to him his plan. I'm going to use you to free my people out of bondage. Me and you are going to go together, and we're going to do this. Moses finds himself in front of Pharaoh, and all of a sudden, uh, through a series of events where God continually shows his power that is significantly stronger than the power of the Egyptian gods, things start to shift and change. That power comes in the form of ten plagues. I'll give you free reign to start yelling out as many of the ten plagues as you can go. Mark, set, go! Locust. Where flies? Uh-huh, uh-huh. I don't hear what you're saying, but I'm just counting them. It works. Sounds good. There's a final plague, which is, right, the plague of death, plague of the angel of death. Pharaoh had hardened his own heart, and then God had hardened Pharaoh's heart, and they found themselves in a place of impasse. And so God said, I will send one final plague, and after this, this will be the last one, and you will be free. The plague, like what happened years before, would demand the life of the oldest son in each household in all of Egypt. So, this is happening. Everyone in Egypt, their oldest son is about to be taken from them. It includes animals. I don't know if you knew that. Oldest of the livestock would be taken. There would be mass, mass sadness and sorrow and confusion and terror. But God's like, there is a way out. If you follow these instructions, you will not experience the sadness of the death of losing your oldest. So, on the 10th day of Nain, I want you guys, talking to the Israelites, to go and take a lamb. And you're going to have this lamb, and it can't be any lamb. It can't be the, the gimpy leg lamb, the right? It has to, it has to be like the, the lamb that is perfect and spotless and pure. And you're to have your lamb in your house for the next four days where you test it and you make sure that it is what it's supposed to be, that it is worthy of sacrifice. So the next four days go by, and they say, then you take this lamb. And the thing is, is death needs to be satisfied as it passes over. Egypt. There is no way around it. Death needs to be satisfied, but I will allow the death of the lamb to be in place of the death of the oldest that's in the house. So you take the lamb, and as, you, as blood is spilt, you take the blood, and you paint the doorposts, you paint the doorframe above, and then that will suffice that will count as the death that's required. So that when the angel of death comes, 
and it sees that house, it will pass over that house. Jump ahead. Matthew chapter 21. Once again, it's the 10th day of Nain. Israel is celebrating Passover as they were instructed to do every year from the moment they left Egypt. That they were to remember what God did. That they were to take a moment and they were to have a meal and have specific things that were done at that meal that would remind them physically, that would remind them orally, that would remind them of all these different ways on what happened there. You know what's really cool is that we also take time in our week to celebrate this moment. On Thursday, we're actually having a Passover Seder here at this church where we will, as Jewish people have done for thousands of years, stop and remember everything that happened and celebrate God's faithfulness, that he is faithful to the Israelites, and we celebrate that he's faithful to us and to all people ultimately through Jesus. If you've never done this, it is so valuable to your story and your faith and your understanding and your gratefulness. And so, it's Passover. It's the 10th day of Nain. Jesus is entering the city. Big day for Jerusalem. She doesn't know what's about to hit her. She doesn't know that everything it's about to change forever. And so, they walk in, Jesus arrives, and at this point, Jesus has a little bit of following. People are kind of paying attention. He's raised some people from the dead. He's fed thousands with hardly anything. He's walked on water. The blind see, the deaf hear, the captives are set free, and people are connecting dots, and they're looking at their Bibles, and they're looking at their stories, and they know the prophecies, and they're waiting for a deliverer, much like they were waiting for a deliverer in Egypt, who came in the form of Moses. They were waiting for an ultimate deliverer to come to them. Their eyes were peeled. And it was interesting because Prophecy after prophecy after prophecy started to be fulfilled in this man, Jesus. In fact, over 600 prophecies were fulfilled in the person of Jesus that were showing them that he is the deliverer. Not a deliverer, but the deliverer that he was the chosen one of God, that he was the Messiah, that he had come to set up a kingdom that would have no end. And all of a sudden, he's coming in and people are getting excited. So excited that they start to see yet another prophecy being fulfilled as he comes in on the colt, a foal of a donkey, which is yet another prophecy from the book of Zechariah. And all of a sudden they see him and they're getting excited and they start to put so many dots together that they actually jump the gun. For they think that Jesus is about to fulfill a prophecy 
that talks about the Feast of Tabernacles where he overthrows everyone and becomes the one that's in charge of all things and sets up his kingdom here and now. And it's interesting because they welcome him with this phrase. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Baruch haba b'shem Arunai. Now, this isn't just a, this guy's great. I think this guy might be something. He has all the tools. This is a declaration. The king has arrived. And with the king comes his kingdom, and his kingdom will have no end. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The Messiah is here. Yet, they were mistaken about what Jesus was about to do. Isn't that a super common place with us as people? We think that God is up to something, and we make plans accordingly, only to have our plans completely destroyed because God was doing something completely different. And it's interesting what that does to the human psyche, that it allows us to find ourselves in a place of delusionment and we become doubtful and all these seeds of, of fear like start to germinate and, and we're like, God, I, I, I thought I, I trusted you and then all of a sudden like I, maybe I don't trust you as much anymore and, 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 and our faith in him is, is, becomes like shallow and his faithfulness to us becomes confusing, and it can take the shape of so many things, right? Child, a job, a living situation, where we think God is going to do something, and yet he does something else. Jerusalem thinks God is up to something, but he's up to something completely different, because Jesus has not come to fulfill the Feast of Tabernacles, Jesus has come to fulfill the Passover. You see, God had chosen his lamb. He knew that death would come for all. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Death must be satisfied. It would not be denied. That all humans for all time would be under its thumb. There was no escape unless there was a lamb that proved itself worthy to take the place of all who are destined for death. You see, Passover was at hand. The next four days were going to be the days where Jesus was tested, where Jesus would be brought into the house of God and he would be tested to see does he pass? And he would be questioned and he would be ridiculed 
and he would end up in the temple of God, the heart of the city, and he would pass every test. I think of this process where we want to understand the depths of God and what he's doing, and we want to maybe even find ourselves understanding what Jesus is up to. And it's only when we stop and spend some time with him and to actually understand his heart and know his character that we start to see what he's actually up to. You see, even the disciples who spent a ton of time with him, right? They were confused. Is this the time you're setting up your kingdom? Is this the time? Is this the time? Is this the time? But there was one who understood. He understood years ago. John the Baptist, at the baptism of Jesus, understood. He said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away sins of the world. He knew Jesus. He spent time with Jesus. He was Jesus' cousin. He got it. And so I just want to invite us as a people to start to cultivate a relationship with Jesus, not an understanding of Jesus. Because all these other people had an understanding of what the Messiah should and would be. They had studied the text. They had gone through the process. They, had, they knew the answers. And so they came to these assumptions that just, this is what Jesus will do. But Jesus is inviting you and me into something so much deeper than understanding. He's inviting us into a relationship where we talk with him, and we ask him questions, and we understand his character, and then we reveal ourselves to him, and it's this mutual relationship where we receive from him, and we give to him, and he gives to us, and we find ourselves not surprised like Jerusalem was. We find ourselves not hardening our heart like Jerusalem did. Because for whatever reason, Jerusalem couldn't or wouldn't at its heart say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We actually see that. If you move a couple chapters over to Matthew chapter 23, this is after Jesus has been tested he has gone through the process, and he finds himself looking over Jerusalem, chapter 23, verse 37. He says this, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones God's messengers, how often I've wanted to gather your children together as a hen protects her chicks beneath her wings, but you wouldn't let me. Now look, your house is left to you. It's empty and desolate. For I tell you this, you will never see me again until you say, 
bless the one who comes in the name of the Lord. The outskirts said it. The heart wouldn't. The people who had traveled with Jesus and seen his miracles proclaimed it. The temple with the Sadducees and the teachers of the law and the Pharisees, who were the heartbeat of the Jewish people, wouldn't. And maybe couldn't. And I don't know where your heart is. I know a lot of us can express, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus is the king. He's in control. We serve him. We honor him. And then he passes the outer court and enters into the temple. He enters into our heart. So many times our heart struggles to say what our mouth proclaims. That our heart says, you are the king. You are the one that I serve. You are the one that I love. It is your kingdom that we're about. It is your ways that we are about. And then we wonder why we don't see Jesus in our lives. You see, one day, the heart of Jerusalem, the temple, the leaders, will say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And they will see. I think God invites us, even in Romans chapter 10, verse 9, it says that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That might be your moment in this room right now. That you have never confessed with your mouth and believed in your heart that Jesus is who he said he was. If that is you, and that is this moment for you, I want to invite you into that. Invite you into that moment of proclamation. Saying, I don't know why I haven't, and I, I, I feel like I can't, and, and there's been a lot of times where I wouldn't, but, but now I'm willing to acknowledge that I need someone to rescue me from that which is inevitable. This is the week where we think about this, right? Thursday night, we do the Passover. We talk about God providing the lamb so that death would pass over. Friday night, we actually look at the lamb's sacrifice. We look at Jesus' sacrifice, the blood that was spilt on our behalf so that death would pass over. And then Sunday
Sunday we celebrate that death lost and that Jesus rose. So that's why we come on Friday. That's why we change our schedule. That's why we work at remembering. Because if we don't, it'll just be Friday. And if we don't remember Palm Sunday, it'll just be Sunday. If we don't remember Monday, Thursday, it'll just be a Thursday. And then Easter just becomes about ham and eggs. when we are invited into the depths of the heart of what God has done. Some of you have inwardly proclaimed that Jesus is king, but maybe you have not yet outwardly proclaimed that Jesus is king. Right? Jesus invites us to do that. He invites us to do that in the act of baptism, where you are saying, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord Here is our king. He is my king. I serve him. I love him. I follow him. My life is his. If you haven't done that, do that. Do that on the day that he rose, on Sunday, next Sunday, on Easter. What a beautiful moment that we can enter into that. But then there are finally those of us who do believe Outwardly, and we believe inwardly. What a season and what a moment to start to reflect the heart of the king that we have. That we can actually start caring for those on the margins. We can actually start seeing people that nobody sees. That we actually do what our king did and go out of our way to spend time with God our Father. That we have been invited to spend time with, and that we can find ourselves not caught up in the kingdoms of this world, and who's in charge, and who's doing what, but we can understand that we are under the kingdom that has no end, and that has no borders, and that everyone is invited to be a part of that God's desire is for death to miss humanity completely and not experience the eternal separation from him that death brings. Sure, we might physically die. Actually, we all will physically die. But that can be the beginning. It can be the close to the introduction of the story instead of the closing of the final page where we have nothing else that's worth recording. That the story of you and I with Jesus can go on. So I want to invite you over these next few minutes that if you believe outwardly and inwardly Maybe it just started a few minutes ago. 
Maybe it's starting right now, that actual inward recognition, the inward saying, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But may we proclaim as we sing to him who is worthy of all blessing and honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Jesus is with our voices that we express our hearts. It is with our actions that we reflect your heart. And it is with our time this week that we recall your goodness and your faithfulness. May our hearts be warm towards you. And may those of us who can't or won't believe, may we examine the lamb this week. May we read about your words and the way you treated people and what you said, your proclamations about your father and about yourself, and may we find ourselves seen that there is no one that we can put our trust in that offers what you offer. And it's so much more than just eternal life. It's life in the here and now. So accept our praise. May it come from our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.